We are expecting. What does that phrase make you think of? For many of us, it probably makes us think that someone is expecting a baby, that they're pregnant. But think about that word, expecting, expect. It means to anticipate or look forward to the coming or occurrence of something or someone. The Israelites in the first century had a lot of expectations. They were living in the shadow of the Roman Empire and they didn't like it. So they had expectations for a great king, a mighty conqueror. These expectations riddled the minds of first century Israel. And finally, one day, their expectations became a reality. But was it really what they wanted? Were their expectations fulfilled? How did they respond when they realized that their king had come? Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. You know, whether you're joining us from one of our campuses or you're engaging with us online or you're a guest here this morning kind of checking us out during the holiday season. Thanks for being here this morning and welcome to Northridge Church. And I need everybody at all of our campuses and even online to do me a favor. Can you look to your right or look to your left or behind you, put a big smile on your face and just wish somebody a Merry Christmas. Go ahead and do that right now. Wish somebody a Merry Christmas. Yeah, it's that time of year, isn't it? It's the Christmas season and You know, as a church, it's a really busy season because we're gearing up towards our Christmas Eve services. Um, I just last week met with our team, and they kind of walked through the plans. And man, you're not going to want to miss our Christmas Eve services. We've got eight services over four locations, and those are online as well. And here's what I would just challenge you to do during this, this, this Christmas season is the first thing I would challenge you to do is just register for those. If you're coming, make sure if you know you're coming, register. It's simply you just go to northridgechristmas.com and you can let us know your family's coming. Here's why that's important. Because I'm praying that God brings around 4,000 people to the, those eight services. And so we need to kind of plan strategically. And so it helps us so much as a staff and as a church to know where you're coming, which service you're going to. And if you could do that, I'd really, it'd be really beneficial to our team. The second thing I would challenge you to do is just to invite Man, for some reason, people are open to Christianity. They're open to the gospel, the story of Christmas this time of year. And man, it would just be a shame if we kept quiet. And so I would just challenge you to pray for those opportunities, to invest in the relationships you have been and invite people. Um, we've printed invite cards. We'll print more if we need to. And just wherever God takes you this week, just be intentional, be strategic to invite your neighbor, the people in your office and say, would you, would you come check out uh, Northridge Church? We'd love to have you. And so I want to encourage you to do those two things. Last week, we jumped into our Christmas series called Our King Has Come. And when it comes to Christmas, at the end of the day, if you get beyond all the noise of Christmas and all the tradition of Christmas, really what we celebrate every December 25th is the birth of a baby. The fact that our king has come and he came through a man and a woman and a baby being born to this earth and we celebrate the fact that Jesus was born as a baby. And man, in our culture today, there's probably not an event as significant in people's life than the birth of a baby. 
I mean, it doesn't matter who, who you are, what role you play in, in life. Man, if you're the parent or you're the grandparent, you're the aunt or the uncle, the niece or the nephew, the brother or the sister, having a baby in, in, in life significantly impacts you. It changes the game for your family. It's a huge moment in life. And in the 21st century, our culture today, to, to have a baby, there's not necessarily this laundry list of laws that you have to follow to have that baby. Sure, there's regulations that the hospital has to, to follow, but when it comes to have a, having a baby in our culture, if everything goes smoothly, we show up to the hospital. If there's no complications, you know, we, we're there for a day or two, we sign some papers, and we go home with that baby to love and to care for it. But if you go back to when Jesus was born, the first century, a Jewish person, Mary, Joseph, having a baby, it came with this list of laws that they had to follow, that they had to fulfill. In fact, that's exactly where we pick up the story in Jesus' life in Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to use the one we provide for you. It's going to be on page 800. And 32. And as you're kind of making your way to Luke chapter 2, I'd, I'd encourage you to put a bookmark in Mark chapter 3. You see what I did there? Like put a bookmark in Mark chapter 3? Guys, I practiced that for a while. You better give me a better laugh than that. <laughs> so we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, then we're going to go to Mark chapter 3, and then we're actually going to come back to Luke chapter 2. And so we pick up Jesus. He's eight days old. He's just been born, and his mother and father are fulfilling those laws that they were required to follow as a Jewish person. Luke chapter 2, we start here. It says, eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So Jesus is eight days old and he's circumcised. Why? Because that's what the law stated. Every Jewish person, every Jewish baby, when it was eight days, they were requ required to circumcise their baby. And then after that, if you can imagine this, moms, dads, after their circumcision, they packed up their family and they traveled, usually walked miles, hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to where the temple was so they could offer the sacrifices required to the law. You know, when we have a baby in our culture today, man, we, we lock down for six months. We're like, this baby can't get the flu, like stay away from the world. Eight days into this, they have to travel all the way to the temple to offer these sacrifices. And you might ask, okay, well, what were those laws that they had to follow? I mean, for Mary and Joseph, what did that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Take a look at this. When someone has a baby in our culture, there is very little that is legally required for them to do. But in the Old Testament, there are clear instructions about what a woman is to do after giving birth. Leviticus 12 is completely dedicated to those rules. First, on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Second, when the days of her purification are over, she is to bring to the priest a year-old lamb for a burnt offering. And third, she is to bring a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. 
If that wasn't enough, remember that many of these people would have to travel for days to get to the temple where they could offer those sacrifices. But if this was their firstborn son, they weren't done yet. Exodus 13 says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Throughout the Old Testament, there is a special place for a firstborn son. This special place came with requirements. God told the people of Israel that all of the firstborn, animal or human, belonged to him. Exodus 13 continues, You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So what does this mean? This might sound kind of crazy, but what God was saying was that the firstborn of every living thing in Israel belonged to Him, which required that every firstborn be sacrificed. Now, even if you can come to terms with sacrificing animals, it presents this horrifying question. Were the firstborn human children to be sacrificed as well? Would God really do that? The answer is no. God hates human sacrifice and would never command his people to do that. But he did require that they redeem their firstborn children. To redeem simply means to buy back. This command is re-emphasized in Exodus 34 verse 20. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. This is the same command, but there is a clear emphasis. Do not show up to offer other sacrifices without the required amount to buy back your firstborn son. So why all this emphasis on the firstborn? It was an object lesson reminding Israel of God's redemption that he accomplished with a plague on all of the firstborn in Egypt. Moses even taught parents how to have a conversation with their children about this. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of the people and the animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. So what was the redemption price? We find the answer in Numbers chapter 18, verse 16. When they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver. That was a lot of money, the equivalent of $2,000 today. It would have been a stretch for the average family, but the five shekels served as that sacrificial reminder of the price of their freedom. So here's the complete picture of what they had to do. There were four commands. Circumcise your son, bring a purification offering, bring a sin offering, and finally pay the redemption price. That was the requirement of the law. Every mom and every firstborn child, they would have traveled to this place, to this temple mount to deliver those offerings. But that leads us to a question. What in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Well. Mary gave birth to Jesus. Jesus was her firstborn son. So all of these laws applied to her. She would have done what God required of her. And in Luke chapter two, we see this take place. But 
something was missing. So here, Mary and Joseph are, are doing exactly what God commanded them to do. I mean, can you imagine all of those things after having a baby? And so here, Mary and, and Joseph are headed to the temple to offer those sacrifices to God. And we see in Luke chapter 2, something indicated about Jesus. We're going to get to it eventually, but we see it indicated at his birth and then lived out in his adulthood. You see, I think the thing we we need to come to grips with, and I think this is the platform I want to build off this morning, is, is simply this. Jesus wasn't an ordinary person. Jesus was set apart. He wasn't just your ordinary baby. There was something different, something unique about Jesus. He wasn't just your average Joe, and I want to show you that in three unique ways this morning. The first way Jesus wasn't ordinary was people saw Jesus differently. The way people looked at Jesus when he was an adult, the way they interacted with him, they noticed that there was something about this Jesus guy that was just unique, that was different. And I want to show it to you in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we pick up the story. It's on page 814 in the Northridge Bible. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is in a place called Capernaum. And in Capernaum, that's northern Galilee, that's the region of Israel that he was in, and it's where a significant amount of Jesus' ministry happens, and here's what happens. It says this, it says, and Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And so Jesus is in this area called Capernaum, he's headed to this house, and he gets to this house to have a meal. And there's this large crowd gathering. Again, just from last week, we learned that, man, Jesus in his ministry is doing things completely different than the average person. He's healing people. He's commanding demons out of people. He's teaching at a whole nother level of authority than the rabbis. And so guess what happens? People want to interact with Jesus. People want to be around Jesus. And it's gotten to the point where he goes to this house to have a meal and a crowd is just gathering around. He can't even eat with his disciples. Verse 21, it continues. It says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Now let me explain what's happening. So Jesus is at this house, and all throughout Jesus' ministry, because he is different and because he's doing things that are different, what's happened is all the religious people, they notice something different about Jesus, and they do exactly what we do when we see somebody different. We start to talk about them. And all the religious people start spreading these rumors that Jesus is crazy, that he's lost his mind, he's out of this world, and all of those rumors eventually end up with Jesus' family. His mother and his brothers are hearing news, hearing people whisper, wow, this Jesus guy is, is crazy. He's out of his mind, and so guess what they do? They travel to Capernaum, to this house, to get Jesus, to wake Jesus up, to say, what's wrong with you, Jesus? And here you, you, you see it. You see people looking at Jesus and noticing that, man, he's, he, there's something different about this guy. It's the one thing that made him not ordinary, but the second thing is almost the opposite. Not only did people see Jesus differently, but secondly, Jesus saw people differently. The way Jesus viewed relationships and the way Jesus looked at people was different than the normal person. 
And we see this played out in, in Mark chapter 3. The story continues. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Okay, so Jesus' family hears that he's crazy. They travel to this house, and they get there. Jesus is still in, in, inside. And so they send somebody in to be like, hey, could you tell Jesus that his family is outside waiting for him? And so this this crowd tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you know this or not, but your family needs you. They're outside the house. They're waiting for you. And I just love how Jesus responds. He looks at this crowd and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. It's like one of these really awkward moments Jesus has. Because, like, obviously he knows who his mom and who his brothers are. He, he knows, but he, asks, he just says something so unique and so weird. Like, why would Jesus respond like this? I mean, the crowd's like, your family's here. And Jesus is like, well, actually, who is my family? <laughs> like, at sometimes it's like, Jesus, are, why are you so awkward? <laughs> I mean, have you ever read your Bible and be like, Jesus, why in the world did you say that? That's so weird. And it's one of these moments. And later on, Jesus kind of defines himself. He says, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And see, Jesus, again, he sees relationships differently than us. He's like, actually, my my family's bigger than that. My family is actually the people who do God's will. But again, it's, it's like, wow, this is just awkward. We see more awkward moments all throughout the Gospels. Let me show you another one, how Jesus viewed relationships differently. Luke chapter 9, it says this, as they were walking along the road, that's him and his disciples, a man said to him, that's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's like, wow, Jesus, what a great response. Like, hey, I want to follow you. Most people are like, yeah, come on, join the club. Jesus is like, well, actually, I'm a vagabond who doesn't have a place to to sleep, so sound cool, right? It's like, wow, you're so weird, Jesus. And and, and it's like he just sees relationships completely different than we do. Again, the, the next verse, verse 59, it says, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so here's a man, Jesus actually initiates this conversation. He says, you follow me. And the guy's like, hey, my parents are about to die. Let me take care of them and then let me go bury them and then I'll follow you. Pretty reasonable request, right? Jesus is like, well, why don't you just let them die and bury themselves? Awesome, Jesus. And there's these moments all throughout the New Testament where Jesus kind of plays the socially awkward card, at least from our perspective and the way we see relationships, but it gives you a glimpse into who Jesus was and how different he was. It gives you a glimpse into seeing, wow, Jesus wasn't an ordinary guy. He had a completely different vision, a different purpose. You see, at the end of the day, what made people see Jesus differently and what made Jesus see people differently is simply this, Jesus' purpose completely made him different. The purpose that God had placed on his life was unique to anybody else's, and so it set him apart. And honestly, when we read our Bibles, 
it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus said some pretty radical, pretty different things because he was different than any other human to walk the face of this earth because his father had a purpose for him. And and that purpose is really concentrated down in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It, It simply says this, for the son of man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. And so everything Jesus says, everything that he does really is filtered through that purpose that his father gave him. And so it made him different. It made him not very ordinary. And so people looked at him a little bit weird, Even today, we read him and we wear like, ah, that's a little weird, but it shouldn't surprise us at all. And actually, we see it panned out in in his entire ministry, but I think we're actually indicated that Jesus was different from the very beginning of his life. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, his parents are now in Jerusalem. They're offering the sacrifices according to the law. It says this in verse 23. It says, the law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so here, Mary and Joseph are doing exactly what God wants them to do. Jesus was born. They're offering the required sacrifices. But here's the key. If you study this passage and you understand the law that they had to follow, there is a significant sacrifice that Mary and Joseph don't give to God. And it was that indicator that Jesus wasn't going to be like any other person. Please take a look. There is something so interesting about this passage that doesn't immediately stand out to us because we aren't familiar with the Old Testament law. But I'm pretty sure it would have jumped off the pages for a Jewish person in the first century. There were four commands surrounding the birth of a firstborn son. Circumcise your son, bring a purification offering, bring a sin offering, and finally pay the redemption price. In this passage, we see Jesus' family going through those steps. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day as commanded. And we clearly are told that they brought two doves or pigeons, and that covers both the purification and the sin offering. But what you won't find when you read Luke chapter 2 is the offering of five shekels. There is no indication that they brought the offering to redeem Jesus. Now, it's possible that Luke just didn't record that part, but why would he leave out the offering that was arguably the most important? I personally can't help but come to a different conclusion. I would suggest that they didn't offer the redemption price. More than that, I think they couldn't offer the money required by God. Let me explain two reasons why. First, they couldn't buy Jesus back because he fully belonged to God. He wouldn't devote himself to working in the family business. He would be fully surrendered to his heavenly father. Actually, the next story in Luke chapter two illustrates this point. Jesus goes to this very site to visit the temple. He was 12 years old and he came with his parents for one of the required religious festivals. But after the festival, his parents begin to travel home. It takes them a while, but eventually they notice Jesus isn't with them. He's been lost. 
they search for him all the way back to Jerusalem. Days later, they find him at the Temple Mount, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. When they confront Jesus about his behavior, Jesus replies, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And there we see it clearly. They couldn't redeem Jesus. His life was totally devoted to God. The second reason Mary and Joseph couldn't redeem Jesus is the more significant one. Jesus couldn't be redeemed because he was the redeemer. Five shekels couldn't redeem Jesus. His life was the redemption price. From the very beginning of his life, Jesus' parents recognized that he didn't belong to them. He didn't need to be redeemed, nor could he be redeemed. He was to be the one who came to seek and to save the lost. He was the one who would be doing the redeeming. Now, I absolutely love Christmas. Christmas is amazing. There is no better time of year but what makes Christmas so special and so great isn't the songs that we sing, the presents that we hand out or receive, the family that we get together with, the trees we set up, or the atmosphere Christmas is all about. What makes Christmas so amazing and special is the reality that at the very first Christmas, the plan was put in place. The Redeemer had arrived. Your sins and my sins would finally have a solution that didn't require going to the temple over and over and over again. And that solution wasn't an animal. The solution was Jesus himself, our Redeemer. You see, what made Jesus different was the purpose his father gave him. That's what set him apart. That's why people saw him differently and that's why Jesus saw people differently. Because the purpose God placed on this baby boy's life. And so when Mary and Joseph go to the temple to offer sacrifices, it hits them. They realize they can't redeem Jesus because he came to redeem them. And he came to redeem me and he came to redeem you. That was the purpose his father gave him, to seek and to save that which was lost. And the story of redemption, that's simply the gospel, that he came to rescue you and me to redeem us from our sins. And when we hear that story, I mean, we engage with it on a regular basis. We engage with it every Christmas. We engage with it every Easter, hopefully every single Sunday. But what I found to be true for really all of us is we hear the story of God offering redemption to us and we respond to that message differently. We respond to the message of redemption through the filter and through the lens of our personal life, what we've been through, what we've experienced and what we have chosen. And so we respond to God's message through our circumstances in our life. And you see, I think when, when, when some of you, you hear the, the message of hope of Christmas, of God rescuing you from, you from your sin and redeeming you, you see, I think you respond this way. You would simply just say, hey, I, I get it. God loves me. I understand that. But the reality is, is I don't 
deserve it. I don't deserve the love of God. I'm unworthy of it. And here's why, Drew. You don't understand where I've been and what I've done. And so here's what we do, is we all kind of look at our life through a scale. And the scale represents me, and it represents you. And so what we do is we say, okay, the message of the gospel, God redeemed me, awesome, he loves me. But Drew, you just have no clue where I've been and what I've done. I don't deserve God's love. Do you wanna know why? Because I've had an abortion, Drew. I'm addicted to drugs. To pornography. I've made mistake after mistake. You don't get it, Drew. I've had a divorce, multiple divorces. God cannot, God will not, and God should not love me. So what we do is we look at our life We say, my bad is too bad. And it doesn't matter what you put here, Drew, it will not tip the scale. And I'm unworthy of God's love. I don't deserve it. And honestly, probably for some of you, that's how you feel based on the mistakes that you've made. That I know God loves me, but his love is not strong enough to conquer this. But yet for some of you, you don't respond to the gospel that way because that's not how your life has gone. You see, for some of you, your, your response to the gospel is, is actually the a- exact opposite of that. You wouldn't say you don't deserve this. You would say, I don't need this. I, I don't need redemption. Like, hey, this is a, a feel-good story. I like celebrating Christmas because it, it, it encourages me. But at the end of the day, I don't need Jesus' love because I, I've taken care of it all myself. I mean, I'd be the first to admit that I'm a sinner. I know the Bible says we're all sinners, and I'm okay with that because I know I've lied and I've stealed and I've cheated before, and I'm I'm not going to admit that I'm perfect by any means. I've got some of this, but here's what I've done is I've just kind of postured my life, and I've lived a life that is good enough. I I love my neighbor. I'll feed the homeless. I mean, I'm not like a a racist. I love people and I treat people with dignity. I'm a good person. Hey, I read my Bible. I I pray sometimes. And and what I do is is I just got to watch the scale. Because right now it doesn't look good for me, but uh, you know what? I'll just be a little bit better. I'll just do enough. So at, at the end of the day, when I look at my life, I can say, hey, I don't need redemption because my good is better than my bad. And so I don't, Jesus, thanks, but I don't really need you because I've got it covered. I've lived worthy enough to receive good because look at the scale. And it doesn't matter who you are today. It doesn't matter if you respond by saying, I don't deserve this or I don't need this. What we fail to realize is the truth of what God's word says about us. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter three, verse 10. He says this, he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And you see, what Paul does is he reminds us of the impact of sin on our lives. He reminds us that we are all sinners, and here's what sin does. Paul reminds us as we look at our lives and we look at the scale, he reminds us of what sin does. Every choice that is sinful in my life, we're all sinners, we all God. And what sin does, Paul says, he says, it tips the scale. It wreaks havoc on your goodness. And so every single one of us, myself included, all of us, This is how we enter life and how we live life. The scale's been tipped based off of our sin. There's no one righteous, not even one. And so that's how it looks. And and it doesn't matter how good you try to be. I mean, you you can lift and you can try to pull on this scale with all you have. You can live the best life, the most moral life. You can pull and pull and pull and live good and do it as best as you can. And the scale won't move. It will still be there because of our sin until we get to Christmas. Because on Christmas, the very first Christmas, God gave us his son. Our king had come and this king wasn't ordinary. He was different and he was different because he came with a purpose and that purpose was to seek and to save that which was lost and this baby boy would grow up and he would go to a cross and he would shed his blood and on the third day he would rise again and the reality is, is King Jesus once and for all tips the scale for you and me. He tips it. And so if you believe in him and you surrender to him, you turn from your sin, this is the reality. Here's a picture of what God can do in your life. It was tipped, but what he does is he says, hey, you don't have to worry about the scale anymore because what I did and what I accomplished for you, my life is that ransom. It's the redemption payment for you and me. And so maybe this morning, instead of saying you don't deserve this, Maybe this morning, instead of saying, I don't need this, maybe today your response is simply, I need to embrace this. Maybe for the first time, maybe it's through just the the imagery, the picture of a scale and how we look at our lives. Maybe you just realize what Jesus and this King did for you, that he came to rescue you from your sin and to tip the scale in your life. And all it takes is you believing in him confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that he is king and it will tip the scale for you and for me. And maybe today you do that or you just surrender to Jesus. But I would bet for the the vast majority of us, we've already done that. We've seen God tip the scale in our life. And so our response is not, we don't have to embrace this. Honestly, what we do is we get to this place where we say, I don't ever want to forget this. Where we live in this posture, where our hearts live in the reflection and the remembrance of what Jesus did in our lives. 
You see, I believe every single Christian needs to place and posture their heart where they remember the gospel every single day because it's the gospel that drives me to live differently. It's the gospel that causes me to celebrate Christmas differently. It's the gospel that causes me to take an ornament off that tree and to love my neighbor. It's the gospel that changes me and my reality. And I'm telling you, when we remember Jesus tipping the scale in our life, you know what Jesus ultimately did? He destroyed the scale for you. Because so many Christians today, we walk around with this pressure to be perfect. I gotta be the perfect parent. I gotta be the perfect mom. I gotta be the perfect Christian. And I can't mess it up because if I mess it up, I'll ruin it for everybody else. And I want you to understand something today. God jacked up and he destroyed this scale because guess what? You don't have to be perfect anymore because he was perfection for you. He was that for you. And so you can relieve the pressure today. You don't have to be perfect because your king was. And so you can live differently because of that. You can walk differently because of that. And so this morning, we're gonna remember that. And the way we do that is exactly what the Bible tells us to do. We remember it through a thing called communion. The Bible says, do this in remembrance of me. And ultimately communion is just a time for us to celebrate, to revel and to reflect at God tipping the scale in our lives. And so you'll notice at all of our campuses, volunteers right now are gonna be coming forward and they're gonna be passing out a little cracker and a little cup of juice. And these are just symbols of Jesus's blood and his body that was broken for you. And so as we take this communion, I encourage you to hold on to those elements. We'll, we'll celebrate together as a campus. But man, our band's gonna come and sing a song. And I would just encourage you this morning, I don't know where you are, but I know God does. And I know he'll meet you exactly where you are. Maybe this morning you just need to say, God, I need you in my life. I believe you are the king and I want you to be my king. And you take communion for the very first time knowing what it means because you have a picture of it. And maybe for some of us as Christ followers, we just need to posture our hearts in a place where we remember what God has done for us. Because the facts are the facts. Our king has come. So listen to the words of this song.